Luke from verse uh, 15, and for the benefit of those who weren't here this morning, we looked verses 1 to 14, and we saw that the whole of chapter 6 is concerned with this question of sin in the life of the believer, and how do we deal with that, and uh, really how deep that it's there, and some of the wrong ways that we can think about that. We can have a very cheap view, a very shallow view. We can be overwhelmed by guilt, uh, and so on. And we saw that Jesus, uh, we are baptized into his death, that when Jesus died on the cross, we were united with him in his death, and we are to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And just at the end of verse 14, he says, "'For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace.'" And then verse 15 says this, uh, what then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as, as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you were slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And we're going to look at something that's very, very simple. Uh, really, Paul in the rest of this chapter takes his illustration from the slave market, which we uh, perhaps may not be too familiar with, but as we look at it, I think you'll grasp and get very much his point. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a song um, that I've quoted many, many times uh, from Mr. Robert Zimmerman, who is otherwise known as Bob Dylan. And all of you who have great taste will know every word of Mr. Zimmerman's songs. Uh, But he uh, released an album which... Uh, shocked people because it was explicitly Christian. And one of the songs on it was, you've got to serve somebody. And often the chorus is quoted, uh, you've got to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But as I uh, looked over the words this week, I just thought it was very pertinent to what's going on in our culture at the moment. So I thought I would read a couple of the verses. You may be an ambassador to England or France. I'm tempted to break into song and sing it with a snarly American voice, but I won't. You may like to gamble. You may like, no. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a social light with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And then this verse particularly struck me. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. Now, what Paul teaches here, what Bob Dylan was singing about, is again highly countercultural because we all like to think that we are free. And this is teaching us, actually, no. And human autonomy, complete freedom, it can never happen. And it is because of this thing called sin. And so what Paul does here is he begins this section with a question. People, you're not under law but under grace. What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? In other words, saying the Christian doesn't have any rules. Now, you get that quite often. People say, oh, I'm a Christian, and I don't live under rules, and so on. And it's just not true. It isn't true. The Christian does have rules. We're not people who um, 
who think that by keeping the rules we save ourselves, but it doesn't mean that we don't have any rules. And Paul will go on to talk about this. Is there no penalty for the sins that we commit? Well, that's not true as well. If you decide tonight to go from here and to go and get drunk and then drive a car um, and you crash, you harm somebody else or you harm yourself, there's a penalty involved in that. We're not free from the consequences of things. What Paul does here is what he's done in the previous section. He answers the question with an absolute no. That's not the case. He talks about being united. In the previous one, he talks about being united to Christ. And in this one, he talks about what happens when we offer ourselves to God to obey him. And what we're going to end up with is that you end up with a very simple choice. Who are you going to serve? So, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Okay, here's the difficult concept for us. We tend to think of slavery that you enter into non-voluntarily. So, the image of the slave market and so on. But in Roman society, probably the majority of slaves were people who volunteered to be slaves. Why would they volunteer? Because they had no food, because they had no housing. And so in order to be housed and to be fed, they became slaves. Um, Much of what is considered slavery in the Bible and is mentioned as slavery is what we would recognize as employment. Um, How many of you here are in jobs that you just can't stand but you need the money, and so you continue in that work. Many people find themselves in a situation, uh, without going into all the Marxist thing, Karl, what Karl Marx taught, and Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, and in Das Kapital, that we are wage slaves. So basically, we are purchased. I think perhaps one of the more extreme examples of that or not extreme, but most blatant examples, is if you were a football star, uh, you are actually purchased. You're, you're bought. Um, or a cricket star, just right now, and those who are interested in the great game of cricket, which is virtually nobody here apart from me, but, um, oh, and Alistair too. Well, you will know that uh, the players, the Indian, the, where the money is in cricket is in India. And they've just had an auction for cricket players. You know, and some have been bought for like 1.6 million and some haven't been bought at all. How rotten must that be to feel? But they have actually been bought. Well, here Paul uses the image of, of someone going to a slave market and offering themselves as a slave to be bought. And in case, again, you think, well, that's in the dim and distant past, it doesn't happen. Unfortunately, slavery has returned to Britain. It is reckoned now that there are at least 20,000 slaves in Britain, most of them sex slaves. And they are largely women who have volunteered from Eastern Europe or from Africa, but particularly from Eastern Europe, to come and to work, largely knowing that this is what you're doing. You're giving yourself over, you hand over your passport, you have to work. They're promised that within a couple of years you'll be set free. 
But that is happening. It's, it's occurred. In fact, it's occurred in this city. There's one street where there was uh, a Brazilian woman arrested and charged for holding uh, a number of people in effect as slaves. And what Paul is saying here is what you do when you choose to live without God is you are volunteering to be slaves to sin. And he says, you can't offer yourselves to a slave master and at the same time retain your freedom. You can't say, I'm free. And he, he uses this image, an image which Jesus teaches, John 8, 31, to the Jews who had believed him. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. To which, of course, they responded, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus, like Paul, sets out the alternatives. Slavery to sin, or in Paul's case, it's interesting what he puts, slavery to to obedience. And that seems a real strange, when you think about it, the juxtaposition of those words, slavery to sin or a slave to obedience. And I think Paul does it because he recognizes that sin is fundamentally disobedience to God. So to sin is to be in slavery. And since there is not one of us that doesn't sin, all human beings are by nature enslaved. Um, it's Rousseau, isn't it? Man everywhere is man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. Well, actually, we're not born free. We're born in sin and iniquity, but everywhere we are in chains. But says Paul, it is different for the Christian. Verse seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now you can skim read this, but it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating uh, way of putting this. Why you, you need to look at the Bible in detail. Because I think most modern Christians would just simply say, I'm free from the law. I'm under grace. I no longer need to obey. But Paul says, you were set free. You wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Now again, that is so fascinating. Because people will go, well, I've been freed by Jesus. What's this form of teaching stuff? What are you talking about? Because that sounds like the Mosaic law. That sounds like exchanging one set of laws for another set of laws. Well, I think Paul comes very, very close to that. I think he's hinting at that to some degree. I don't think, again, he's explicitly stating that we are not saved by law. But he is saying this, that once you become Christians, then everything does change. Now, he uses this phrase, in different ways. For example, 1 Corinthians 11.2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Or 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings 
we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every brother, believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. See, when you became a, Christ, a Christian in the first century, whether it was in Rome, as here, or in Greece, or in Israel, or wherever Christianity flourished and spread, what would happen is you would be taught about Jesus, you would probably experience and see some kind of signs and wonders and miracles that often happened. You would certainly experience the power of God through the proclamation of the word, and you would be given the teaching. And you would be expected to conform to that teaching. You were not asked to make it up as you go along. Give your heart to Jesus and do whatever you want. That's not what was stated. And several times Paul commends them for that. And he commends the Romans here. He says, thanks be to God. He's praising God. You used to be slaves to sin. Now you wholeheartedly obey the teaching. And I think that that sits very uncomfortably with most evangelical Christianity today. I think it does. I think, I think we don't like it. It sounds a little bit legalistic. It sounds, it, it makes us too uncomfortable. We, like, we, we think that we have this freedom. We become Christians and we've got a freedom to do whatever we wish. What makes this verse even stronger if you look at it? You wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching, not which was given to you, but to which you were given. You were handed over to this teaching. And that is even scarier to the modern mind. Because we don't want, we want, to be honest, we want teaching that's given to us that we decide to keep or we decide not to keep. And we'll take the bits we like and we'll leave out the bits we don't like. And if we're biblical Christians, we'll tend to say not that. But nonetheless, this is the teaching that's given to us and we're going to defend the teaching. But remember what Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said about defending the Bible? Defend the Bible? I would as soon defend a lion. We're not to defend the Bible. The Bible's not given over to us. We are given over to the teaching. And that makes people very, very uncomfortable. And even more... When Paul uses the analogy, verse 18, you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness, he's in effect saying, you're changing slaveries. In the first half of this chapter, he talks about two kingdoms. In the second half, the bit we're looking at, he talks about two sl slaveries. Conversion to Jesus is an act of self-surrender. All to Jesus, I surrender. I surrender all. And Paul delights in that. He breaks into praise because he's summing up the difference in their experience. They've gone from being slaves to sin to wholeheartedly obeying. I like, I read this comment, love and do as you please is a maxim which in those who have God's love poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit can only result in their doing those things which please God. To treat being under grace as an excuse for sinning is a sign that one is not really under grace at all. So actually, you see, when someone says, I love Jesus and I am going to do whatever I want because I've been set free, and yet they don't obey or do what Jesus says, what they're actually saying is, I don't love Jesus. 
I mean, you can say it. Everyone can talk, yak, 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 I love Jesus. You can sing the praise. But if you don't do what Jesus says, how can you love him? If you love me, says Jesus, you'll keep my commands. So if you say you love Jesus, and you say, well, I'm not going to keep your commands, basically, you're deluding yourself and you're lying to others. Now, he goes on to, to hammer this home uh, verses 19 to 23, I put this in human terms because you're weak in your natural selves. In other words, what he's saying is, this is actually a bad analogy in some ways, because slavery is not the most accurate or appropriate analogy for the Christian life at one level. The yoke of Jesus is easy, and serving him is liberating, but he knows they'll understand the analogy that he's using. It's not that he's contrasting two equal slaveries, if you like, he's He's basically mucking around with words, playing with words, and, and, and saying there is a freedom that makes you a slave, and there's a slavery that makes you free. And he talks about the difference between these two. I'm using this analogy, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Here's the thing about slavery to sin. It doesn't stay static. It always results in moral deterioration and in spiritual deterioration and often in physical deterioration. You go downhill. You offer yourselves to sin. You go downhill. It's funny. um, Well, not funny, but sad that I can think of many instances where you, you see that occurring in different ways. Just often very gradually, usually most people don't kind of go from living normal Christian lives to suddenly becoming you know, militant anti-Christians or drunkards or whatever. But what happens is this, just to give an illustration, a man decides you know, he's just... Things aren't going so well at home and different things. And, well, why not? He's away on business and up on the screen comes, well, you can have this pornographic film. So he watches it. Feels really guilty, really bad. Goes to church double over the next two weeks. But then he does it again and does it again. And before you know, he's got involved in relationships which are wrong and sinful. Or maybe might even be a similar thing in terms of, of drunkenness, or it may be a similar thing in terms of perhaps not something as perceived as dramatic as that, but um, uh, I'll, I'll just say this as an illustration about myself. I'm not passing comment on anybody else because I don't know anyone else's heart, but um, when uh, I, I was ill quite a lot last year and um, had to stay at home initially first of all I did not want to stay at home on a Sunday evening and then I got into the habit of it you know it was nice on a Sunday evening having a bath and reading a book and the fire and you lot were here freezing well you weren't freezing but you know and and, and I, you know this I never particularly understood that particular temptation but not there's anything wrong staying home and having a bath and having a wee break and doing something like that but it very easily becomes a habit and then you kind of drift and you drift and you drift and before you know it Ah, you see, you're not going to be there on Sunday morning either because you've, you're going to meet that friend because you want to have a meal with them and you're going to witness to them and so on and the rest of it. You just drift and drift and drift and it happens so easily. And that's 
kind of what he's saying here. He's saying, look, when you turn away from God and from his word, and I'm only using those as illustrations, and maybe like Paul, I should apologize for a bad analogy, which is what I think he's doing here. But I think that you go downhill. And that's where I think there's got to be a very simple warning for somebody here. You've started on a path that you know that's wrong, and there is no, okay, I'll just snap out of this and then I'll be okay. It's a downhill slope. And the trouble is you'll gather speed as you go downhill. Whereas the opposite here is that the obedience to God, the slavery to God is progressive, leading, what does he say? He, it leads to ever-increasing holiness. The, the other one leads to ever-increasing wickedness. This one leads to righteousness, leading to holiness. There's a transformation that occurs. Now, the point of all of this is we are not autonomous doing whatever we, we, we please. There's a will to righteousness and a will to God. And here's the key thing. True relationship is found, or true freedom rather, is to be found only in a relationship to the God who created us. Only by bowing the knee to God can we become what God intended us to be, holy and happy. And only then do we receive what he wanted for us, eternal life. Now, I do think if, you, if you're going to take one soundbite from this, if I was going to tweet from this, and I don't tweet during a sermon and neither do you, but if I was, this is what I would tweet, that <laughs> slavery is freedom and freedom is slavery. That's what he is teaching. Verse 20, when you were slave to sins, you are free from the control of righteousness. The biggest objection that most people have to Christianity is I don't want someone telling me what to do. Not even God. I can have God as a helper. I can have God as a friend. I can have God as a partner. And I love that stuff about what a friend we have in Jesus, but I do not want someone telling me what to do. Maybe you're very different from me, but I, when I was a teenager, I was incredibly rebellious. I think the terrible twos lasted well into the terrible twenties for me. And being told to do something was the very reason I wouldn't do it. Seriously, uh, one of the reasons I never got drunk in my life was because my friends got drunk and they said, come on Dave, you've got to try it. I said, no, I don't have to do what you do. And I'm not going to obey you. Um, maybe the Lord knew the kind of perverseness of my mind and so on, but protected me in so many ways by things like that. But we, we can have this attitude, I'm not going to obey, I'm not going to do that. And Paul says, sure, you can choose your freedom from God. You have that responsibility. You can eat the apple. You can go against what God says. And even as a Christian, you can say, I, I'm not going to go along with the Lord. But it's not freedom. It leads to slavery. But verse 22 now you're free from sin, you've become slaves to God. That is actually real liberty. Slavery to sin leads to remorse, guilt, death, and hell. Slavery to God means holiness and eternal life. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. John Stowe again beautifully puts it. There's a freedom which spells death, and there's a bondage which spells life. And that's what he's saying. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? These things result in death. 
But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember as a student, as a young Christian, being approached by a number of my friends who weren't Christians, and we stayed in a hall of residence in Edinburgh. And I remember them trying to convince me. If they'd known me well enough, they realized this wouldn't have worked. But they said to me, David, what's wrong with you? Are you not free to go and get drunk? Are you not free to do all the stuff? And I said, yes, yes. I said, I'm free to do it, but I'm not going to do it because if I do it, then I'll no longer be free. And they just thought I was a freak. They thought it was freedom to be like everyone else. They thought it was freedom to be able to take drugs and to drink and to sleep around and do all that kind of stuff. But to me, and I didn't really know this, this passage, but it's what Paul is saying. To me, I just couldn't see how that was in any sense freedom. Now, the problem as you go on as a Christian is that you, you struggle with all different kinds of sins, other sins, and uh, it, it's, it's, it can be hard, it can be difficult. But to know real freedom means to commit ourselves to God and to Jesus Christ. Now that's why at the end, verse 23, he says, you know, you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves to God, this benefit leads to holiness and the result is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is not writing this as an evangelistic verse. It's always been used as a, this is a gospel message to reach non-Christians. Well, it is at one level, but I would argue almost anything in the Bible is. But we tend to pick out different verses. This is written to believers and reminding us as believers that there are wages to sin and there's a gift from God. Sin pays wages. You know what happens with sin? You get what you deserve. God gives a free gift. You're given what you do not deserve. The charisma of the gift of God is that you are given eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that comes, that gift comes by the atoning death of Christ. I sometimes wonder whether we've lost sight of the teaching of Jesus when, I mean, teach, Jesus taught the most amazing things. I was in discussion with somebody recently who said, well, as long as it's just the teachings of Jesus, I don't mind. This is a Christian. And I said, okay, let's go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And almost half of that he rejected because he didn't like it. Because the teaching of Jesus, he was just the nice bits. But what about this? Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And the way which leads to life is narrow. That's very counter-cultural. Paul talks about these two, the broad road and the narrow road, as the two kinds of slavery. By birth, we're in Adam, the slaves of sin. By grace and faith, we're in Christ, the slaves of God. One, as we saw, leads to shame and ongoing moral deterioration, accumulating in the death we deserve. The other leads to progressive holiness, accumulating in the free gift of life. Now, just as Paul says, we are not free to sin as believers. He also says something that is, 
I have to say, if I'm going back to the form of teaching, it is the form of teaching which I received as a very young Christian and which I still believe with all my heart and yet which still probably more than any other teaching annoys Christians. Even genuine believers, I think it annoys. And that is this. Not only are we not free to sin, but we are set free to serve. Now, I mentioned this morning that you could be a married person and say you're going to live as a single person, and you could do it, but your, your ring would remind you every time. But sometimes you do meet people who marry, and I've seen this sometimes, a young couple get married, and they live as flatmates. Just they're living together as flatmates. And the concept of serving one another, oh, no, no, that's not what it's about. It's, it's much more romantic than that. It's much... But actually, when you get married, and I know people make jokes about this, and I, and I wish people wouldn't make jokes about it because it's actually a serious part of marriage. You are committing to serve that person. And that's, a, that's a, not always an easy thing to do. But when someone says, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I can sin freely, to me, that's indicating that they're, if they're a Christian at all, it's one with an incredibly poor theology. But I'd question whether they were a Christian at all. But equally, when someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to serve, that's not going to happen. I, I say, well, what kind of Christian are you? That doesn't make any sense. Now, we have to be careful because we can't specify the ways that people will serve or the ways that people will worship or whatever. I'm talking here just about the attitude, I'm talking about the heart. I'm talking about the desire to serve. You shall, says Jesus, know them by their fruits. I remember a doctor, a junior doctor coming here, and she was doing the usual, move to the city, go around a few churches to see which one she'd go to. And as I was standing at the door, I'll never forget it because she was such an encouragement because there was only about 20 or 30 people at the evening service and uh, and she went out the door. She said, David, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go around the other churches. I, I, I want to stay here. Now, how can I serve? What can I do? How can I help? And I was just like, you're kidding me. You know, you have to settle in for a long time and you have to. And she's not. How can I help? And she stayed for, I think, four or five years. And that was her attitude all the time. How can I help? You know, she's the kind of person who you have to strike off rotors uh, rather than ask to serve on them. And she was just such an inspiration in that way. But I, I, I thought long and hard about saying this because this is very personal to me. But I, I do want to say this about my own mother. Um, my mother is in her 80s. And I, I'm just working, I was trying to work out why is she like this. She lives about 15 miles from her church. She drives with a dodgy shoulder. She should not be driving. I keep telling her that. I hope if this has been recorded, I need to edit this bit out. <laughs> or no, she hasn't got the internet, so it's okay. But this is the free church. Someone will tell her anyway. It doesn't matter. I'll, I'll, I'll just take the hit, okay? Um, but she shouldn't be driving, but she does. She drives. And you know, every week, do you know what she does? To go in a nursery and a creche in the church. And she's in her 80s. She has every reason not to do that. You know, I just, and I mean, well, people will tell her, but, but there's not a chance. And if there was church cleaning, she'll be there and so on. And you know what I originally put it down to? I thought it's her Edinburgh working class background. You know, there, there are people, I, I put it down as a generational thing. 
to which there's a certain element of, of truth. There are people who grew up in a generation where the concept of not working was just bizarre. You earn your keep. You work. And I do think there's a little bit of that generational aspect. But you know what? I've come to appreciate a little bit more uh, in, in my own uh, mother and father. Why does she do it? She's not earning her salvation. She knows she hasn't got that long to live. She doesn't need to earn credibility with the community or anything like that. It's because she loves the Lord and she wants to serve people. It's, it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that, that the people who shout and talk the most about the love of God are sometimes the ones who do the least in terms of serving. So please understand what I'm saying. There's a danger if, if you teach this, and Paul recognized this danger. There's a danger that it becomes legalistic because some people might say, well, I need to be doing things so that people can see, but there are things that many people do serve in ways that nobody sees. So, you know, just be careful about the kind of tick box mentality. But I, I know all the arguments, I know all the excuses, and I still think that the heart of a Christian is to be the heart of a servant. It's because we are sons and daughters of the living God that we want to serve. Have you ever gone to a home where the kids have been spoiled, the kids have not been disciplined, and you know, when it comes to meals, they're like this, mom, dad, get me this, get me that. We were joking today about, uh, around our table about having a butler coming in and to, well, we don't have a butler, sorry. Um, and, you know, but sometimes there are some kids and they're growing up and they think that, that that's what their parents are there for. You're, you're, you're here to serve us. It never crosses their mind that they are to serve as well. And, and I, I fear that if you want to see where love is, and I think there's a service out of fear and there's a service out of love. So I know that there's a distinction. But if you want to see where love is, it's where people are willing to serve because they love, not because they're afraid, not because they're trying to earn brownie points, uh, not because they're showing off. And that's where you get Francis Ridley Havergale's hymn, which I uh, mentioned this morning as well. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be sweet, swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing, always only for my King. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. I was quite convicted by reading this from Paul Barnett, who in his commentary on this chapter of Romans says this, We need to bear more fruit for God. It is easy in the midst of a busy life to be distracted from God and from loving Him. It's easy to be sound and have an orthodoxy with a heart that is dead towards God. That's a chilling word. You can have an orthodoxy with a heart that is dead towards God. Now, I know people, and you know people, who serve because they're, for all the wrong reasons. That's not what we're talking about. I'm just talking about where our heart is at and the fruit it is easy in the midst of a busy life to be distracted from God. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm talking about. I've done it. Done it many times. And probably will do it again. And the Lord in his mercy, those whom he loves, he disciplines. And so he chastises me. 
and he chastises his people. And he's just saying to his children, where are you? Look what I gave. You have wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching. You have been set free from sin. You have become slaves to God, and it reaps holiness. And the result is eternal life. But the wages of sin is death. Why, Paul says to the Galatians, do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back to that way? Why do you want to go earning the wages of sin? Why do you not want to serve in the freedom of God? We have some older saints here. And those of you who are younger, I want you to get to know them. And I want you, above all, to observe them. They are so willing to serve and to help. And they're well past the stage of thinking that it does them, gets them brownie points in heaven. They know that that's not the case. But they do it because they love the Lord. And that, I think, is the greatest example of all. I'll leave you with one illustration that may seem a small thing to you, but to me was indicative of um, something deeper. I was out for a walk this week and got lunchtime and I was a bit hungry. So I thought, oh, I'll go into Goodfellows and Stevens. And I thought, right, no, not a pie. You know, we'll, we'll go past that stage. But, you know, get something quite nice in there. So I, I ordered something. And I was going to walk out and reach to my pocket. And, oh, oh no, counting the pennies. One pound ten, one pound twenty. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to have to pay with a card. The woman behind the counter, just a great Dundee woman, she says, no, 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 we don't take cards. I said, oh, well, hang on, I'll just go to the bank. And she says, no, no, forget that. I'll pay for it. She says, how much have you got, son? Uh, I like the fact she called me son. How, how, how much have you got, son? So I can, one pound 34. Well, it's one ninety-nine. On you go, I'll pay the rest. And she took money out of her own pocket and paid me. I just, I was absolutely, I said, no, no, you can't. Said, and then I said, okay, fair enough. And uh, I went away. I did go to the bank and I could get some money. And I went back into her about half an hour later and, and I uh, gave her a wee gift on top of what she'd given given me and she said don't do that don't do that don't 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 do that don't do that and I said no what you did was really kind you didn't have to do that and you know we just chatted for a wee bit and I just I was thinking about that in terms of my own response as a Christian to so many people sometimes how mean it is how surly it is how ungrateful how oh I, I want them to do this for me I want them and they're and here's a woman, as far as I know, not a Christian. Maybe she was, I don't know. Just saying, here you go, take this. And I, I think we need to have that a whole lot more. And that's what I think Paul is coming out of here. You're not slave to sin, you're a slave to God. And because you're a slave to God, you reflect God's standards, you reflect God's laws, you reflect God's love. May God grant that it would be so, and that the beauty of the Lord our God would be upon us. Amen. Let's finish by singing um, the words, Amazing Grace, my chains are gone. We've been set free. And uh, if you're not a Christian, you've got a choice. You can, as Mr. Dillon says, you can choose to serve the Lord or you can choose to serve the devil. That's your choice. Um, if you are a Christian, Let's remember 
whose we are and to whom we belong. And let's rejoice that we've been set free by being slaves to serve the living God. Let's stand and sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and please remain standing for the benediction.